Well, good morning. My name is Eric. If you don't know me, I'm one of the pastors um, of, at New Life Church. I'm really excited to be here. If you do know me, then you're really mad that my little five-week-old boy is not here. And that's really what you're more concerned about at this point. He's at home because Mama's a little bit sick. So, But yeah, I'm really glad to be here. I'm really excited to be here at Wilsonville with you guys. And we get to open up Romans. We're in chapter 3 this morning. And it might be a little bit difficult because, as Peter said, the words of Paul are a little bit hard to understand. So... There's a disclaimer. <laughs> but if you want to turn to Romans 3, that's where we're going to be. Have you ever felt like you were someone's favorite? Has anyone, you just knew you were someone's favorite? It could be a spouse or a parent or a friend or, or an employer. You were just the best employee or the best friend or, or you knew you were the favorite. You had a privileged position and if you were around other people with that person, you would, you'd be kind of looking at them going, eh. You might have a good relationship, but I have a really good relationship with this person. I, I really know my dad, or I really know my friend, or we have a really special relationship, or you're, you're an employee, but you're not the best employee. You, know, you could think like that. And some, if you've had that experience, you may have also had that experience where um, you're with that person and then you realize one day that they might have special relationships with other people too. You, you see this in the face of a firstborn kid a couple days after the secondborn kid shows up, right? Wait a second. I thought, I thought all the attention went to me. I thought I was the special kid. Or, or when you're with your best friend and you're out to dinner with some other people and they, they introduce you to their best friend. I, I thought, I thought I was the best friend. Or the employer who you knew, liked you, he starts giving accolades to a different employee or someone that you don't think is working as hard as you or, or someone, and you go, wait, this is, I thought I was the favorite. I thought I was the special person. I thought we had a special relationship going on and it was good. Now what's, what's happening? And that's where the Jews are sitting in Romans 3 right now. That's the emotion they're going through, and I want us to kind of realize that as we go. In the beginning of the letter, Paul is writing to the Romans, and he's writing to those, uh, he says, to those loved by God and called to be saints. And the Jews would have said, yeah, yeah, that's us. Yeah, we know. Those called to be saints, loved by God, that's us. And Paul begins in chapter 1, and he talks about the gospel, the power of God to the Jew first and also to the Greek. Yeah, the first, the Jew first, that's us. And he continues in chapter 1 to talk about the world Everybody on the outside exchanging the truth of God for a lie and giving, giving, being given over to dishonorable passions and all this, this evil stuff. And the Jews say, yeah, everyone else, the world, yeah, get, go get them, Paul, go get them. And he continues um, in chapter 2 and he says, those who, are ju- who, those who judge are also under judgment. And the Jews say, wait, hold up. <laughs> but, well, I, I judge people, but they're, they're evil, they're on the outside. They're not, they're not like me, like the special relationship I have with you. And, and Paul continues, and the, and the Gentiles follow the law because they know it naturally. And the Jews say, well, we follow the real law. We have it written down. I have the book right here. And Paul says, it doesn't matter if you do and say the right things, if you are not changed internally. That's what we heard last week. 
And they say, well, hold up. We're, we're following all the right stuff. We're doing all the right things. We're saying all the right things. I think, I think Paul's talking about us. And in the very end, he says, circumcision, that external act, that should be a matter of the heart, and you need heart change too. And the Jews say, I thought, I thought we were the favorites. I thought we were the favorites. And that's, that's where we are in chapter 3. At this point in the letter, um, he's talking to the Jews, and they're starting to realize that they thought they had this special relationship of being the favorite, and now they're not so sure. And in, in this course of the letter, Paul is working through what he calls, a, it's called a diatribe. Basically, he sets up this person that um, is someone he wants to teach and instruct and encourage, and he does this back and forth with them, this whole discussion. And at this point in the discussion, his assumed pupil or student is the Jews, and they are going to get frustrated because they thought they were the favorite. And we're going to see five questions in an, in an argumentative spiral downward. And these five questions get increasingly more absurd um, because they're trying to gain ground. They want to figure it out. They want to just be the favorite again. And when all the dust settles, we're going to see that there is no advantage if you don't listen to the words of God. That's the whole thing this morning. There's no advantage if you don't listen to the words of God. So let's go to the beginning. Verse 1 of chapter 3, Paul is continuing in his discussion. And in verse 1 he says, Then what advantage has the Jew, or what is the value of circumcision? It's as though the student raises his hand and says, What's the point in being a Jew then? What is the advantage? What is excellent about being a Jew? What is the good of being a Jew? And then what about the circumcision thing? What about that? Because that's permanent. That's external. That's something we already did to show ourselves as set apart. What do we do with that? And this is right after chapter 2. In chapter 2, Paul at the very end, he says, For no one, and this is verse 28, For no one is a Jew who is merely one outwardly, nor is circumcision outward and physical. But a Jew is one inwardly, and circumcision is a matter of the heart, by the Spirit, not by the letter. His praise is not from man, but from God. So this, this student raises his hand and says, then why did we do all that? I have this huge list of rules that we've been following for a thousand years. We did this physical thing to do something different than everyone else around us. We've literally set ourselves apart from everybody else. What's the point? Why does it matter then? What do I gain from that? Is, is there something better about being a Jew? Because right now, you've gone through two chapters of this, Paul, and I don't feel, feel very special. I don't feel very favorite. It seems like you like that God likes the Gentiles, too. And that's how he feels. Why did we do this? Why have we been trying to keep all this up? Is there anything worthwhile? And what is Paul's answer? In verse 2, he says, Is there any advantage? Paul says, Much in every way. To begin with, the Jews were entrusted with the oracles of God. Paul says, is there, is there something to be gained? Is there something good about being a Jew? Of course, and very much so. There's definitely something to be gained. And he says, to begin with, to start off, I have a big list that I'm not even going to get to. There's a big list in chapter 9, if you're curious. I have a big list, but the first one, which is most important, the Jews were entrusted with the oracles of God. He says, you guys got the oracles of God. 
And this phrase, oracles of God, is not just a phrase we put together and, and it's just the Old Testament. It's not, it's not just the, the, old, the old part of the Bible. This, this phrase is to describe the very words and promises that God spoke to the Jews. And Paul says, you got the words of God. God spoke to you and gave you the words of promise, the words of salvation, the words about the coming Messiah. That's big. There's something special about that. And I, I love this. We were, we've, last year we were going through the book of Genesis and that really shows God giving those words. Basically, God the creator of the universe was on a mission to redeem the entire human race. And he set aside specific people to be entrusted with the words of his promises to them. And we saw this last year. We saw in Genesis, God plucked from a bunch of evil people, another evil guy named Abraham. He pulled him aside and he said, I am going to make from you a people. I'm going to make a people out of you. And I will be their God and you will be my people. And someday from you, I'm going to bless all the nations. And someday from you, I'm going to bring someone that will crush the snake from Genesis 3. And someday from you, I'm going to bring someone that will redeem and restore. And he tells Abraham these things. And he tells Abraham's son these things. And he tells Abraham's grandson these things. And eventually those, those promises get fleshed out and more of the Jews are holding and entrusting, entrusted these words. We see um, the K- King David, he gets told, this, this Redeemer, this Restorer is coming, but you're, he's also going to be a king and he's going to sit on your throne because he's going to be one of your descendants, entrusted with the promises of God. And the Jewish prophets flesh it out even more. God is going to send the Chosen One, the Messiah, and he is going to rescue us, but he's also going to get beat up and bloodied and killed and he's going to serve us through that way. And the Holy Spirit will come and change our hearts from rocky hearts to soft hearts of flesh. And the Jews had these words, the words of salvation, the words of the coming Jesus and Messiah. And Paul says, yeah, there's something really, really good about being a Jew. You have the promises of the future gospel. You have the promises of the future gospel. And I, and I love this because if you think about this story there were Jews all along the way that knew the Messiah was coming. They're waiting, they're, they're, they're burning in anticipation, waiting for the gospel to come. And even in, in the book of Luke, we have, uh, if you remember, Simeon and Anna, these two Jews, they were waiting and waiting and waiting for the Messiah. And then Jesus, little baby Jesus shows up and they go, oh, finally. And that, those were Jews that had been entrusted with the oracles of God waiting for the gospel to show up, waiting for Jesus to show up. And who were the first people to start the church? The bunch of Jews, right? The church started as a little Jewish sect, entrusted with the oracles of God. Paul says, of course there is value. You had the promises of God. You knew Jesus was coming before anyone else. You were entrusted with the message that rescue was coming. You were given the promises of salvation from a saving God. And, and the student raises his hand and he hears that. And he, he, he agrees with that. He says, yeah, we were given this, the promises of salvation from a saving God. Question two, verse three, it says, he says, what if some were unfaithful though? 
Does their faithfulness nullify the faithfulness of God? He says, yeah, we, the student says, yeah, we have the promises. You get, we were given the oracles of God that said salvation is coming, rescue is coming, restoration is coming. But if I look back through history, there's a bunch of people that didn't follow. There's a bunch of people that never followed Yahweh. There's a bunch of people that weren't waiting like Simeon and Anna, waiting for Jesus to come. There's a bunch of people that didn't follow Jesus. There's a bunch of people that after Jesus died and rose again, they're still not following Jesus. There's a bunch of people that didn't join this movement that is the church. And they were entrusted. They were entrusted with the words of God. What about them? They are not faithful. They didn't listen to the words of God. Does that mean that when God entrusted, he messed up? Does that mean it didn't work? Because these are the words of salvation, Paul. And I, I see a real question. I thought we were the favorites. You gave us the words, and some of my friends and some of my brothers don't follow. What then? Does that mean God is not faithful? And it's almost like he says, doesn't sound like much of an advantage to me. And what's Paul's answer? In verse 4, his answer By no means. Let God be true, though everyone were a liar, as it is written, that you may be justified in your words and prevail when you are judged. Paul responds emphatically and emotionally. It's as though he says, no way. Absolutely not. If others were unfaithful, that does not nullify the faithfulness of God. That does not change the character of God. No way. Don't say that. Our missteps and our unfaithfulness do not taint or negate God's character. He is true regardless of us. Paul quotes from Psalm 51. That's what's in those little quotation marks there. And we've already read from Psalm 51. But Psalm 51 is a, a song or a poem that David wrote after he committed adultery with Bathsheba. After he had done one of the most egregious things of his life. The, the short story is that Paul, uh, David was in his palace when he should have been out at war defending his country. He was the king of all of Israel. He should have been defending the country. Instead, he's in his palace on a hill. And from his nice little palace, he could look down the hill and he could see other people's houses. I've actually been on that hill. It's kind of fascinating. Uh, but you, you can look down and, you, and there would have been houses all the way down the hill. And you could look down and see, oh, there's, there's someone down in that. Oh, that's the bathroom of that person's house. And I can see them. Interesting. And David looked down and saw Bathsheba taking a bath. And rather than close the shades and realize, I should not be here, I should be defending my country, he said, have that, have that lady come on up here. I, I'm going to call for her. She should come up here. And David slept with Bathsheba, and, and Bathsheba conceived. And David said, uh-oh. And rather then at that point, I messed up. He calls Bathsheba's husband, who was out fighting, defending Israel, calls him back, says, hey, I think you should hang out with your wife. I just have a little break. I think this would be a lot better if you did that. So that maybe he could be tricked into thinking that it was his child. And like a good, good guy, Uriah says, no, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to sleep on the steps of my house because all my other brothers are out defending Israel, and I don't think it's right that I should come home and take a little vacation because we should be out fighting. 
So he stays, and then he leaves, and David has him killed on the front lines. And so you have King David committed adultery with someone else's wife, sends that guy off to be killed because he doesn't want to get caught, and God's prophet Nathan shows up and points the finger and says, you're the man. You screwed up. You have done evil. And once David realized what he had done, once he realized the sin he had committed and who he had sinned against, he writes Psalm 51. And he says in verse 3, For I know my transgressions, and my sin is ever before me. Against you and you only have I sinned, and done what is evil in your sight, so that you may be justified in your words, and blameless in your judgment. And that's our quotation in Romans. David knew he was wrong. That he had sinned, and that that doesn't diminish who God is. His sin was on himself only, it was him. And David even recognizes that the judgment of God and God's words against him and says those are justified and you are legitimate in your judgment. If I am unfaithful, even though I was entrusted with the words of God, if I am unfaithful, that's on me. That's not on God. And that's what David said. And this is a guy that had the oracles of God. This is the guy that was promised by God, your future son will be a king forever and his name will be Jesus. Even that guy, when he stumbled, he said, that's not God's fault. That does not make God unfaithful. I'm unfaithful. God is faithful even if we are unfaithful, even if we don't listen to the words of God. That's why Paul says, no way, by no means, absolutely not. God's faithfulness is not hinged on our listening to him. And the the student raises his hand again. He wants to be the favorite. He wants to have a little bit of an advantage. And in verse 5, the student says, but if our unrighteousness maybe like the unrighteousness of David, if our unrighteousness serves to show the righteousness of God, what shall we say? That God is unrighteous to inflict wrath on us? And Paul says, I speak in a human way. I I love that he, he, he asked this question, and he says, I'm not even speaking normally anymore. I have a small perspective. I'm saying something ridiculous. But the question continues, and it's, it's starting to spiral down. It's starting to become a little bit unhinged. Because this questioner is saying, don't you think our unrighteousness kind of serves in making a contrast between God's righteousness so we actually make God look better? Hmm? What about that? And if, and if that's true, then, then if he judges us for being unrighteousness and making him look better, I don't, I don't think, I think that's unrighteous. It's, it's like he stands up and says, you know when you get someone to wear a suit and they have a really nice white shirt? I'm the black tie. It just pops. Right? And if, if I'm making him look good, why should I be punished? I speak in a human way, right? <laughs> I'm saying silly things. I'm making God look good because I'm the black tie that pops against the white shirt. 
So if that's true, I think God is unrighteous in judging us and pointing out our unrighteousness because I'm just making him look good. And we do, the, we do this all the time. We, especially thinking from a human's perspective. We do this all the time. We say, I don't think God can be loving and nice and judge me. Because I don't think I'm that bad. And even if I am that bad, I'm just, I'm just the black tie that make him look good. And we say, we want to lower this bar of standard and say, I'm not that, there's, there's people that are definitely bad. But I'm not that bad. And if God is really loving, he shouldn't be able to judge me. I think he'd be unrighteous to judge me. Because I'm not that bad. And my friends aren't that bad. That one guy I don't like, he's definitely bad. So we, he should definitely be judged. But I'm not that bad. And, and that is from a perspective of just me. That's just my, that's a small perspective. I'm not thinking on the grand scheme of things. I'm not thinking about the just standard of God. I'm just thinking about me and making sure that I am good enough as opposed to everybody else. And what is Paul's answer? He says, by no means, exclamation point, again, no way, absolutely not. For then how could God judge the world? It's as though Paul says, what are you talking about? And he repeats the question back. If God were really unrighteous for judging your unrighteousness because it pointed out his, his righteousness, what? What? No. And he says, then how could God judge the world? And he points it right back to his pupil, right back to his student, and right back to us. When we lower that bar, we want God to judge somebody and something. And the Jews here, they would have, they would have been this, this cordoned off group and said, we, we are God's favorite. And everybody else out there, God's given them over to their passions. They're terrible. They do all these terrible things. God's going to judge them. Not us, because we're God's favorite. But God's going to judge them. And, and Paul says, if you're thinking this way, how's God even going to judge the world? Because if he can't judge you for being unrighteous because you might make God look good, how can he judge everybody else? If he were to do that, you have a crooked judge. You can't do that. A judge is supposed to look at the standard unbiasedly and say yay or nay. And if you add an additional standard that's I'm God's favorite and well, I like them and they're making me look good because they're so bad. You have a crooked judge. You don't have a righteous judge anymore. And the Jews want God to judge the world. He says, how, how can God judge the world if you have a crooked judge? And we do this. It's not just the Jews. The, the evangelical world, the Christian world, we do this. We point at everybody else. Look at all that stuff they're doing. God's going to judge that stuff. Well, what about you? What about the? Well, no, we're, we're God's favorite. See, that's not how that works. And I would say even those that say there is no God want justice against evil. We all lower that bar just enough so we can... And everybody below us, even if we say there is no God, deep in our bones we want justice against evil. We want Hitler to get what is his due. We want 
Joseph Coney, the, the man stealing kids from their villages and brainwashing them to fight in his army. We want that guy to get his due. We want justice against evil. We just want the bar just high enough so I, I can get past it. And if you do that, if you lower the bar and say, God, just judge here and below, you're asking for a crooked judge. You don't want a crooked judge. You don't want a crooked judge. God will judge the world as a righteous judge at his righteous standards. God's character is not changed by our excuses or objections. And the student raises his hand again, and the, and the, the questions are starting to spiral a little bit more. In verse 7, But if through my lie, you, you can almost seem like squinting, but if through my lie, God's truth abounds to his glory, why am I still being condemned as a sinner? And this is the, it's just getting terrible, right? And here's where I feel like the questions and excuses are just getting ridiculous. Um, have you ever been in an argument before, like a, like a proper back and forth argument on purpose, right? I, I like those. Typically, it's a good discussion. Maybe the two parties disagree and they'll go back and forth. Here's my first point. Oh, that's interesting. Here's my rebuttal to that point. Well, here's my second point. Okay, here's my rebuttal. And usually it's back and forth and it's just, it's good. And you, and you stretch your brain and you learn some things and you figure each other out. And sometimes one of the people will get so frazzled and feel like I have nothing left. They just kind of say, well, what about this? And if you were, if you were observing these two people, you'd go, that's not a very good point. I don't. Well, let's just keep listening and then rebuttal and then, well, what about this? Like, that's worse than the last one. And it's as though they're, they're talking and they're talking and they realize, I am wrong, but I can't stop. So they go to the kitchen and they go, you know the junk drawer? Yeah? They take the whole junk drawer out and they just... Because they know they're wrong and I'm just going to give you everything in the kitchen sink because I have to keep talking. There, there was a point, I was a camp counselor for a while, crazy adventures, and I once had this rowdy group of, of junior high boys and they hated math. And I was a math degree, I was a math major at the time, so I, I saw it as my duty to explain <laughs> why math is so fascinating. And we were having a discussion, back and forth and back and forth, and they were getting a little bit frazzled. Until this one, this one kid, he was just angry. He, he sets up this elaborate riddle. Well, there's, there's, there's these four men and there's this hotel and it's a rainy day and there's a, there's the bill and they split it four ways and then the bellhop got confused and he gives them the money and, and it ends up with this absurd answer. And he goes, see, math is dumb. <laughs> and, and being the math major, no, 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 this is, just, this is just a word trick. Let me explain it. So if the four guys, and he goes, it doesn't matter, math is stupid! And he just runs away. That's how I feel right now. The student raises his hand and says, but if through my lie, God's truth abounds to his glory, why am I being condemned as a sinner? Because you're a liar! 
And Paul answers only slightly less annoyed. In verse verse 8 he says, sarcastically, And why not do evil? That good may come. As some people slanderously charge us with saying, their condemnation is just. I just love the sarcastic response. I hear your point. Why don't you just go shoot people? Then good will come. Like, it's just, it's just ridiculous. Why don't you go do evil so good may come? And he even has this offhand. Some people are saying that we're preaching that. And it's ridiculous. In his answer, everything has become so crazy that Paul doesn't even justify it with an answer. You're saying absurd things. Some people are saying that we are preaching this and they will be judged by a righteous judge and it will be just. Our our argument has spiraled all the way down to absurdity. And the final question, the Jews... He, he, he raises his hand. He says, what then? Are we Jews any better off? Does it even matter? Do I have any advantage? Do I have any head start? I thought I was God's favorite. Does it even matter? And we've come all the way back around, right? Paul walks through the whole exchange into absurdity. What is the advantage of being a Jew? You have the words of God for salvation. Yeah, but someone didn't listen to them. So that means God is unfaithful. No, God is faithful even if everyone abandons Him. Well, yeah, but what if my unrighteousness makes Him look good? God is a righteous judge and that will never change. He will always be balanced, never be crooked. Well, what if my lies make Him look good? You're being silly. You had the words of God. You had the oracles of God. But is there any head start? Is there anything that makes me better than everybody else? Is there anything that puts me a little bit out in front? And Paul's answer, No, not at all. For we have already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin. Paul says, There is no advantage to being a Jew if you do not listen to the oracles of God. The words of salvation. God entrusted you with the words of salvation. And if you do not listen to them, there is no advantage for you. But you've been holding these for thousands of years. And if you don't listen to them, there's no advantage for you. All are under sin. All need rescue. Because all will be judged by a righteous, uncrooked judge. And to bring this home for us, there is no advantage to identifying with evangelicals or Baptists, or Christians, if you do not listen to the words of God. If you do not listen to the oracles of God, if you do not listen to the words of salvation that were entrusted to the Jews and later entrusted to the church, the words of the rescue of Jesus the Messiah, if you don't listen to those, there's no advantage. Rather than fight against the character of God, embrace His words of salvation. Bringing a bunch of excuses and objections does not change the character of God, and those objections are often from a small human perspective. He is still righteous, even when we are unrighteous, and He will judge righteously. But He's also good and provides rescue from His judgment.
Whether we identify as a Christian or a churchgoer or an evangelical or we think we are doing the right things that a Christian is supposed to do or an evangelical is supposed to do, we are either rejecting the oracles of God for salvation and like chapter 2 says, we're storing up wrath for ourselves because of our unrighteousness, our lies, our evil, everything he had objections about. We're making excuses about why God shouldn't be able to judge me We're rejecting the oracles of God or we know and embrace the words of God that bring salvation, the good news that Jesus, the seed of Abraham, the son of David, the restorer and redeemer, willingly gave himself up for us on the cross to satisfy the wrath of God so we can be rescued from judgment. That's what the words are. Those are the oracles of God. Don't make excuses for judgment. Rather, Embrace the words that rescue you from judgment. Embrace Jesus, the one that rescues us. So you can say with Paul from verse 16 in chapter 1, I am not ashamed of the gospel. Those are the words of salvation. I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. Those are good words. This morning we get to remember in physical form, the words of salvation. With the bread and the cup we have at the front and the back, we get to remember that Jesus broke his body for us. That's what the bread is about. He broke his body for us and shed his blood. That's what the cup is about, to save us. He died on a cross for our judgment, and that's why we remember with broken body and blood. If you believe that and identify as one saved from your unrighteousness, By the sacrifice of Jesus, I invite you to come up and take the elements during the next song. And after that song, we'll we'll, we'll all take it together. Um, If this is a new idea for you and you're hearing these objections, you're hearing this discussion go back and forth, and it's just new and you feel like you're just beginning to maybe understand, um, just, just be there during that song. You don't need to come up or take any of this, but just sit there and think and ask God to help you understand the words of the gospel, the oracles of salvation of God. And if you have questions, you can talk to myself or anybody that was up here talking this morning. We'd be glad to help you and answer your questions. Let's pray together before we take communion. Lord, I thank you that you're willing to walk through crazy questions with people and that your Character does not change when we have our objections or our excuses. I'm so glad that you do not judge on my standard. I'm glad that you are a righteous judge and that you're not crooked and you do not play favorites. You judge everyone accordingly and we've all fallen short. We have all sinned. And in spite of that, you also give rescue. You are willing to put that judgment on Jesus instead of us. And I pray that you would gladden our hearts with that truth. Rather than invest in our objections, I I ask that you'd help us to run to Jesus instead. Because we need rescue and you're willing to give rescue through your Son. I thank you for that truth. I pray that you'd help us to listen to the words, the oracles of God that you've given us. And not just depend on the group of people we hang out with, but instead depend on Jesus. I pray that as we remember and as we sing that you would 
um, excite us and give us thankfulness because you are so gracious and good. Amen.